Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Claudia Monicelli with another episode of Multiple Voices. My Multiple Voices podcast, true to its name, includes different series. For example, we have the Voices of Love, where we discuss relationships, the voice of empowerment, the voice of laughter and play, the voice of pleasure, and the magical voice of archetypes and how they change the way we live. But we also have the voice of memory that includes everything from history to discussions of past life regression. There's also writing voices where we interview both seasoned writers and authors who have just started getting their feet wet with writing and we learn what can work for you as potential writers. Our series called Voice of the Spirit discusses different forms of spirituality and religion. And then Channeling Voices is a series that covers what happens when you channel, but is also extended to mediumship. Take a moment to review this podcast if you've enjoyed listening, and leave a hearty five stars. I'd appreciate it. Enjoy your listening. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here with another guest. I'm here with Danny Brassell. And Danny Brassell has a quite an interesting take on life in general, but more specifically, what we should all be doing. And um, he's an avid reader. I have to assume this because from the information I have of him, it doesn't necessarily say that he's an excellent reader or that he can consume uh, books constantly. But what does he do? Um, He is, first of all, an internationally acclaimed speaker. And we get that because he's here too. (laughs) And uh, he's a best-selling author of 16 books. Now, if he doesn't read, he does write. 16 books is quite a number of books. First, let me say, welcome, Danny, to our show. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Claudia. Thanks for all you do to spread joy around the world. (laughs) You're sweet. Well, let me continue my job here. Um, Two of the books uh, that he's written um, have the following titles. Leadership Begins with Motivation. He'll be talking a little bit about that. And The Reading Makeover. And I love that title. I really do like that title. And because at least it presupposes to me that there's a new way to read or there is a new uh, perspective about what reading is. Um, I, I'm going to forego all of the rest of the introductory remarks that I will include in the in the episode, and let me give it. So, what is which book came first? The leadership begins with motivation, or the reading makeover? Yes. Yeah, so, Claudia, most of my books have been about reading because I spent yeah. the last uh, thirty years as an inner city teacher, uh, really trying to get kids to love reading. And one of the ways I would get students to read was when I was a middle school teacher. I was the only teacher who had no tardy students, and it's because I always started class reading a Paul Harvey story aloud to them. Paul Harvey, (laughs) he passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 325 years old. But when I was a kid, I used to love it. At 12, 15 every day, he'd come on the radio and say, I'm Paul Harvey with the rest of the story. And you'd just be glued for five minutes trying to figure out who he was talking about or what company or whatever. And so when I read those to my students, a lot of those stories were about like the founding of Sears Roebuck and None of my students uh-huh. know what Sears Roebuck is. And right, so I said, right. you know what? I need to write an updated version of a book like that. So I wrote Leadership Begins with Motivation, yeah, which is yeah. a whole bunch of little vignettes. And it was interesting, Claudia. After I read it, uh, I, I wrote it and then I, I was reading it and I was like, huh, completely unintentionally. 
so many of my examples in this book are of white male Americans. And I was like, wow, that's weird. And so the I book wonder I'm writing, why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, so now the book I'm writing is predominantly minorities, females and international stories, because I think everybody mm-hmm. can be lifted up yeah. by those types of stories. Mm. Well, well, well. So this really leads into why, okay? Uh, you, we on this show uh, and on many uh, podcasts, really, guests usually talk about their activity, what they like, their passions and all of that. And what I found to be true is that they concentrate on something that was very important to them in one way or another. Either you were never an avid reader or you hated to read or you came across someone who really made it possible for you to read. Is it A, B or C or is there something else? Yeah, it's it's the former, Claudia. I grew up hating reading. My father's a librarian <laughs> and oh. I, always hated the, I always hated the public library. They always smelled funny. There was always Wait a minute, ladies and furniture. gentlemen. Now, you don't have the, the um, you don't have the benefit of a video. I see because I'm seeing it in a video, behind him is this huge library with all these books, the same size, all different colors, very, very important looking. (laughs) Go ahead, Danny. Well, it's true. What happened basically was once I started teaching in the inner city and I saw a lot of my students didn't have a lot of the things that I had growing up, I said, shame on me. I mean, I was really blessed, Claudia. Both Mm -hmm. of my parents were in the home. We were lower middle class, but we never starved to death. We always had food on the table. My parents Mm -hmm. read in front of us, they read to us, and we always had plenty of access to reading materials. And so that really became a passion for me. I'm like, you know, every kid should have those types of resources available to them. And, And every kid, you know, I find schools do an adequate job of teaching kids how to read. But the question I always ask people is, What goes to teaching kids how to read if they never want to read? I teach kids why to read because I've never had to tell a kid, go watch TV. I've never had to tell a kid, go play a video game. And I never Mm want to have to tell a kid, go read a book. I want them to choose to do it because they love it. Yeah. Uh, Let me wait. Let's just take a step back. Now, Mm -hmm. um, everything that I've read about you and that I read about you is a person who has is working with school children mm-hmm. at an yeah. age for formative years really um well they're all formative until <laughs> we get to be 21 but um how did you get into that did you have any experience in your lifetime that was linked to say the corporate world or anything like yeah that? of course so i was a journalist before i was a teacher and i had a great mm-hmm. job where i had exposure I got to meet every major newspaper editor in the United States, and one major daily offered me a job uh, doing the city beat for $16,500 a year. And then a friend said, oh, they're looking for teachers in the inner city in South Central Los Angeles. It's $25,000 a year. And so I became a teacher for the noblest of reasons, Claudia, for the high pay. Money? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and we're both laughing because you're not in education to make money. Yeah, (laughs) and and what's been great, Claudia, is I've taught all age levels. I started off teaching high school students, then Mm -hmm. I went to middle school, then upper elementary to lower elementary to pretty soon. Instead of preparing students for college, I was coming home with snot marks all over my pants from kids hugging me. And what I found, Claudia, is what works with a a 12th grader doesn't necessarily work with a kindergartner. 
but what no. works with a kindergartner works with all age levels. Even today, when I'm working with corporate executives, a lot of the strategies I'm using are strategies I use with kindergarten students. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to jump on that. Now, um, with when you work with the older people, let's put it that way, uh-huh. um, why would you do that? Um, is it to motivate them to read? What would what is your what are you doing there what's a nice boy like you doing with them you go to most conferences and the first question i look at i'm asking this is lame why why are we why has it got to be so boring there's no engagement just because you have information presented to you doesn't mean you're going to retain any of that information and so i find working with adults is the same as working with kids is how can i get across points that stick in people's heads wait wait, maybe I've misunderstood. Now, you work with adults for them to be able to process written material better. Is that right? Or, or have no, no, I, I, no. Basically, I, with adults, I'm working on a lot of leadership skills. I train oh. speakers and things like mm-hmm. that. And uh, it's just so many people were put in a school system, which is a one-size-fits-all. Okay. And mm-hmm. now that I'm a, an avid reader, one of my favorite things to read are biographies. And I always Ooh. laugh when I read biographies of successful people because almost all of them have something in common. Almost all successful people dropped out of school at some point. Yeah, and I'm right, like, right. Isn't that amazing? Why is that? Yeah. Like, what are we doing wrong in school? And so I'm always trying to figure out ways to keep people engaged so that they're actually, you know, constantly curious. They're not, they're not learning for a grade. They're learning to, yeah. to satisfy yeah, yeah. their curiosity. All right, now I'm going to ask you the difficult stuff. Okay, um, great. On this side of the screen, right? Mm-hmm. I have come across, I have to say that, that a good 40%, if not more, of the guests that I have on this podcast have said to me, either before or during the episode, that they have ADHD. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm always so surprised about that. And I think, well, is it because they measure it so often in the United States? <laughs> or, or <laughs> and I have never heard anybody have that here in Italy, you know? So I'm thinking that maybe it's one of those things that, because when I grew up in the United States and I went through, we, I mentioned through the system, the educational system until the university level, there were testing, there was testing every year, you know, I know I still have the results. I was supposed to be a school uh, director of a, of a, you know, grammar school or something like that. But is it, could it be that it's due to the testing system? Well, I think Claudia, when I was a kid, uh, ADHD was called curiosity. I Mm. think, uh, I think it's a nice little, uh, uh, diagnosis that people conveniently like to accept all the time now. And in, in America, we love to give people a pill. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I just don't, uh, you know, if people want to limit themselves by describing themselves with a disability, they can. But I mean, mm-hmm. uh, to me, uh, and, there, and, and don't get me wrong, there's people that actually yeah, have sure. a real condition. But I, I'm, yeah. I'm surprised it's as low as 30% of your guests. In my experience, it's ah. usually 75 to 80% of the people say, oh, oh I, yeah. have, I have ADHD. And then they come up with all these excuses. And so whenever yeah. I've been a leader of a team or a faculty, I always say, the next time you need an excuse, please just say this, Peru has a new dictator. And people say, <laughs> 
well, what does that have to do with anything? I'm like, well, one excuse is as good as another, isn't it? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It is, it comes off to me as being an excuse, and I don't say this to, to you know, criticize, but I, it just seems so out of context when people say that to yeah. me, uh, you know? Um, it's like, I have high blood pressure, or I have a, a wart <laughs> or something, you know? Um, but now the other question- looking for a crutch. A crutch. Uh, I'm linking something else to this. So obviously if you work with uh, school children and reading there are uh, people who are dyslexic and that is uh, counterproductive to the reading process have you come across that well so just to make people feel better in my research over half of the fortune 500 ceos around the world are dyslexic and what people mm -hmm. have to understand is dyslexia is a reading disability and all reading disabilities are curable. So first thing is uh, I'm a big believer in an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you mm -hmm. feel like you or your child might have a reading disability, have them tested, get them, get some extra help. Right. I'd rather, I'd rather attack it early than wait for it to blossom. Uh, yeah. But second of all, you know, then you just have to figure out, I've always told people, let's figure out what your weakness is and turn it into a strength. And so dyslexics are actually very good at processing information auditorially. So one of the things I always uh, advise mm -hmm. people if, if they're dyslexic is listen to, listen to audio books. Right, you know, that's it's, it's, what... It's just as good yeah. as, as reading on your own. So, uh, so this is I, what I was going to get in. Is mm -hmm. it really just as good as reading on your own? That's... That's... Yeah, so I'm one of these poor, poor, pathetic people that's actually read every U.S. government study on literacy over the last hundred years, and all of these reports are always over 2,000 pages long, and there's always one sentence on page 100 that says, the research seems to suggest the single best way to improve reading is to be read aloud to. And then they never say it again because it sounds way too easy. One of my uh, friends and mentors, Jim Trelease, the author of the Read Aloud Handbook, he said if reading aloud cost $129, every parent in America would rush out and buy it. And if we found out kids didn't like it, they would mandate it in the public school system. It's the simple <laughs> things that make the biggest difference. <laughs> I never thought about being read aloud to oh, yeah. to improve I mean, I don't under, even understand what that means. Well, so I, I've asked tens of thousands of people, how, how did you learn how to read? And I've never had a person say, oh, I, I've never had a little Claudia in the audience say, oh, you know, when I was a little girl, my grandma used to have this book that she'd read to me. She'd sit me on her lap and we'd rock in her rocking chair and she'd point at the words, smile at me and go, alligator ball no <laughs> i've never heard that but they'll oh, they'll no? read aloud stories they'll they'll read aloud <laughs> nursery rhymes together <laughs> wait i'm trying to think now <laughs> look look i'm i'm going to come clean all right uh-huh uh, -huh. uh I mentioned, you know, I came off the boat. We went, you know, mm -hmm. my, my parents are Italian. My parents were Italian. I, with three sisters, we spoke English to each other, went through the English educational system. My parents spoke Italian to us. Okay, mm -hmm. I go to Catholic school. It was in kindergarten. Then I don't even think it was first grade yet. The, the a Sister Mary puts me in a room with three Hispanic children. And mm -hmm. because I had... I knew another language. She thought that I could teach them how to read. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. 
so she gave me a blackboard and I thought that was cool. She gave me some chalk and I thought that was cool. And then we were just playing. You know, we were just playing. We were talking to each other and trying to understand each other and then just started writing things. But I, I, you know, I can see the mouth forming. We would talk to each other and the mouth would be forming and people would see where the tongue is supposed to be going and and how to read aloud something. But I'm, I'm still not sure, uh, Danny, exactly if that has anything to do with actually reading because your definition of reading may mean, and I'm not sure, you correct me, getting information into you through the means of looking at data or looking mm. at, you know, a, a source, whether it's audio or written. I, I'm not sure. What, what exactly do you mean by reading? Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, I'm making fun. I, I, I think that uh, <laughs> one of the things I always say is, you know, there's a big phonics movement in America. And I'm like, well, that's great. But just so you know, English is not a phonics based language. I mean, Spanish is. I can teach wait a minute, anybody. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't get that. Now, English is, what is English, the phonics movement? English is not a phonics space. It's it's based on looking associating sounds with the letters, and I'll tell you oh, why. Oh, of course not. Yeah, no, English course is not, not a yeah. phonics space language. I mean, Spanish is. I can teach you how to read in Spanish in six weeks yeah. or less. Mame mi mo mu, nice and consistent. You'll understand the point when I yeah. when I look at when you look at the letter A in Spanish, yeah. it makes one sound. Ah. One sound. Yeah. Always right. ah in yeah, English. Yeah. Ah ah. Sounds like I'm about to vomit. Makes (laughs) 18 different sounds. Exactly. Not a very useful strategy. But again, don't get me wrong. I definitely believe that you need to have some explicit instruction where the child understands whatever said can be read. But Uh where the big problem is, is that we spend so much time on drilling kids, they lose any kind of interest or passion or curiosity in reading. And that's always the question I always ask people is what good is it teaching a kid how to read if they never want to read? You know, uh, people, people who love to read are lifelong readers. They don't do it for a grade, they do it for themselves. And so that's what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do is to really bring alive reading. So, and you know, the research is really clear on this. It doesn't matter yeah. what you read. What matters is how much you read. It doesn't matter yeah. if you're reading James Joyce yeah, yeah. or James yeah, yeah. and the Giant Peach. Yeah. People who read more read better. So, and well, one of the things I, I know, tell parents I is, yeah, little boys, the little boy who only reads books about Captain Underpants and Snot is going to be a little, is going to be a better reader than a little boy who refuses to read anything. You know, Captain yeah. Underpants and Snot books are the gateway drugs to Shakespeare. But first off, right. you got to okay. get the kid hooked. Yeah, well, I, I've i been teaching a long, long time, but I've never taught levels that you're teaching now. I've mm-hmm. forever taught in academia. But I have two kids. <laughs> now, yep. the first one, always lay in bed lie in bed with us with the book open and he was maybe two he didn't understand what he was doing but we were reading so he just kept all right this older my first is uh you know a scientist i'll just say that as a scientist and just devours everything everything could could read you know the yellow pages just puts it under the covers you know them some blankets when i had the second child (laughs) i I tried, he never read Captain Snot, he never read Mickey Mouse, nothing. I couldn't get him 
to read anything. And I started thinking, well, what does he like? He likes, you know, cars. And so I thought, okay, I'd get him magazines. That didn't work. Then, you know, I saw that he was start sort of leaning toward female figures and so I tried to try to get, get him to do that and so what my point here is even just with the language the English language because they grew up in an Italian environment and mm. I you know English was there and then at one point two and a half years old my first son said basta basta mama no more he figured out he was the only one talking English to me and he came home he said that's enough and that was it He's now bilingual, but he did it on his own. Mm. He did it on his own. The one who never read has perfect diction, pronunciation, perfect, picture perfect. But he reads only when he wants. Mm. If it's something to do with some kind of machinery that will help his new blah, 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 he goes and he'll spend hours and hours and hours. And... But, you know, you mentioned before, early on, um, when we first came on, you mentioned, and it was very passing, uh, you said, I don't, I don't convince them or I don't suggest that they watch television. I work with reading. You know, you mentioned television very quickly, mm -hmm. fleetingly. And I thought there, let me get back to that. Because um, there were, there are a lot of uh, children who are very observational based, they will just watch. All right, let's say television because that's the closest thing to home. If they go outside sports, they'll go and they'll watch all of the way everyone behaves. Mm -hmm. And then what I found is that all of, an, there's an inexplicable development that occurs and then they put the observation together with any other source of information that comes to them. And what I'm getting at is that, unfortunately, the school system has a certain number of years and they've mm -hmm. got programs. They have to do this, you know, geography, history, all of that in a certain amount of time. And I understand that motivation is very, very important. I'm positive about that. But I'm wondering, isn't it a little upstream? Isn't the difficulty a little upstream because there's, you know, the way the program comes down to bear on students at that age? Yeah, I love that, Claudia, because I, I think you're identifying what I identify is look at your non-reader son. He won't read anything, but all of a sudden you give him something he's actually interested in and he'll go off for four hours. I mean, when yeah. I was in high school, I was forced to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And no no offense to anybody who loves yeah. The Scarlet Letter, but the, the, the stories about Hester Prynne has to wear an A on her chest because she committed adultery. And I asked my teacher if I could wear a B on my chest because I was so bored reading that book. And it just made me hate reading. Whereas I'll read, I'll give you an example. I was teaching a, yeah. a little boy, a second grader, Kiara. Yeah. And Kiara, Kiara's first grade how, teacher. How old are they in second grade? Eight years old. Okay. So Kiara's first grade teacher told me, Kiara don't know nothing. I'm like, well, thank you for that. Well, Kiara, who don't know nothing, came into my classroom one day and he's like, hey, Mr. Bissell, you see Barkley last night? He had 18 points and 16 boards. And I'm like, thank you, Kiara. Because from that point on, every day after lunch, I'd sit him on my lap 
and we would read the LA Times sports page together. And guess what, Claudia? Kiara was one of my best readers at the end of the year, and all that kid mm. ever read about was sports. Now, eventually, mm -hmm. I think it's important that he learns a little bit more academic reading, but mm -hmm. even then, I give this argument to people. If, if you talk to Warren Buffett, who reads probably eight to 10 hours a day, are you mm -hmm. gonna ask him, oh, please analyze this French romance novel? No, he's not reading that. He's reading things that he's very interested in, mm -hmm. in terms of his stock portfolio. He's very narrow in his reading and there's nothing wrong. The, the, the more you read, the better you get. So whatever you, you are interested yeah. in, I, I tell business people this all the time. I'm like, you know, if you're a leader, you know, you should be reading leadership books, read about how to become a better mm -hmm. leader. You should, you don't have to spend time reading, um, you know, whatever they force fed. I, I was just doing an interview on live Nigerian television. And uh -huh. one of the problems I see in Nigeria was Nigeria used to be a British colony up until yeah. the 1960s. And so their school system is still based on the English system. And yeah. so the students are required to read Charles Dickens and Jane Austen yeah. and William Shakespeare. And there's <laughs> nothing wrong with those authors. They're great. Yeah. But to a Nigerian kid, maybe they're interested in reading from a Nigerian author like Chinua Achebe or something like mm -hmm. that. You're in Italy. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, kids should be reading things by Italian authors. I mean, I'm gonna read Pinocchio because Pinocchio is yeah, Italian. Right. You know, yeah. uh, I, I used to work at a, a, a preschool for homeless Latino kids in downtown mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. one day we got a whole bunch of books donated to us in Italian. Now, none of us oh. spoke Italian, but I can decode <laughs> Italian. So every afternoon mm -hmm. I used to read to the kids, some of the kids, it was their favorite part of the day. But just because, and this is where I was going to go with the phonics <laughs> argument, is just because you can read words quickly doesn't mean you understand anything. Oh, I mean, of course not. I do that all the time when they show the, uh, the FBI uh, videotape warning in French. I love to do my French for my wife. Like, hey, le, 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 I mean, I sound great, but I don't understand a word I'm saying. You yeah. know, and it's the same thing. I see kids a lot. If you ask a kid who's the best reader in the class, I bet you almost every kid always says whoever the fastest reader is. And that's a big ah, mistake mm. because reading is not speed. Reading is understanding. And I've seen kids that can go, once upon a time, there were three bears. Yeah. And you're like, what did you just read? I have no idea, but I can read the, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. And so yeah. there's a happy medium. And again, I don't want to put down actually, because you had yeah, talked about yeah, it. Yeah. I, I agree. You, there's in, in the English language, blends are fairly consistent. A blend is uh, two letters yeah. together, like a TH almost mm -hmm. always makes the same sound. So mm -hmm. I think having a kid recognize those things is an important teaching moment, yeah. but I don't think that's the end all be all. I think you also have to give kids a joy of literature and forcing them, you know, whatever mm. it is that the school yeah. system thinks is supposed to be read. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah. you know, literature can be all kinds of things. I'm sure Mark yeah. Twain wasn't popular in his time as being <laughs> literature, but it's it's literature now. Yeah. Um, you, while you're talking, I was it made me think of for many years, and I still am. You know, formamentis. I'm an, uh, an interpreter, conference interpreter. One language in, the other language out. Right, and there uh -huh. are different modes of interpreting. One is, of course, the UN setup with the earphones in a booth, a soundproof booth, and and one goes in and something comes out. Another mode of interpreting is the type of thing that we do in press conference. You have a pad, like usually a stenography pad, and someone 
speaks, you take notes and after the argument is presented, then you give it to the uh, delegate who's next to you usually, or you whisper interpret it. Now in this second mode, um, the, the, it's not stenography, but it is based on um, icons. In, it's a very personal system, but there are general rules. And I've published extensively on that now. Nice. Yeah, and, and um, so son number two, okay? Uh-huh. We're, um, y- there are history books there you have to study, right? You have mm-hmm. to study because at one point you have to take a test and you have to get out of that school. If you want to yeah. go anywhere, you have to get out, right? And uh, in this country, we have at the level of um, the, the eighth grade level, say that's middle school, at the end of middle, middle school, there is a national test. And at the end of the high school, there's a national test. And and one of the topics, you, you have the basic Italian math, you know, the top, typical. There was a history component, and it was so difficult because even if you don't read it for pleasure, because I could fall asleep just reading, it's a perfect thing, you know, to, for me to sleep to. Um, but it had to be done. So I took this system and I said, okay, let's start drawing, you know, mm. what we're reading. And so we had these sheets in the kitchen and it was easy peasy because it was out there. It was all out there. And um, the, the interesting part of reading is, well, people who, it's almost a game. You get to read and you get oh, you're going so fast and you want to go slow and you can go fast, but then sometimes you want to go slow. And some people read diagonally because we do that to get the information from things, right? When you start trying to reconceptualize what you're reading, just to have a conversation about it is when the problem starts we mm. can say that's for a test or just to have a conversation or just just to tell someone about it now i'm wondering if when you talk about motivation um what are the ingredients for that soup i mean what goes into that well motivation i always tell people uh, different strokes for different folks if you have <laughs> yeah. uh, you know i really what i and i i think that's you first of all you had a great strategy cloudy because i always tell people everybody has their own way of learning so yeah. i learned from a very because i stuttered as a child and oh. i was i was blessed to have a, a a woman who eventually she would sing things to me and oh, i would nice. sing them back without my it was kind of like the movie the king's speech uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, I lost my stutter and I became a swan. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and here it was, he is, it was kind of, multiple yeah, voices, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> exactly. Well, it was kind of cool. I was speaking in uh, India, um, and I had this little boy who was missing his left arm, and I had mm-hmm. done a motivational speech, and he had tears in his eyes. He's like, "But what kind of hope is there for me?" And I said, "Well, when I was your age, everybody called me s- s- stupid because I couldn't s- speak right, you know." And isn't it interesting 
that the boy they said was stupid who couldn't speak right now gets paid ridiculous sums of money to go around the world to do what to speak and he had a big he had a big smile on his face mm -hmm. and I it's something I always tell kids I'm like don't let anybody define you you're the only person who should be defining mm -hmm. you and all of us have our own motivational tool and so for me I was really good with songs for some reason you stick it to mm -hmm. a song it sticks with me for right. you me you too. Mm -hmm. it was doing those pictures yeah. with the history oh I'm gonna bring yeah. that I mean Walt Disney yeah. said people think in pictures and I completely agree with him was that that yeah. was a really good strategy um, mm -hmm. I, I'll offer people uh, I was actually doing this exercise last week with a bunch of executives is I gave them a, a vocabulary quiz I gave them uh, <laughs> 20 words to learn in, in 10 minutes and I said okay I don't care how you did on the quiz what I'm interested in is what did you do how? to study the words you know, yeah. and so some people, they said, well, I memorized them in order. I'm like, well, that works unless I change the order. Then it might be a poor strategy. Right. Uh, some right. people, they right. said, okay, I made a whole story using the right. words in the story. I'm like, that's a good strategy. One person did what you did. They drew pictures with the words and they could remember the pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, one person used parts of speech. One person cheated. And I thought that was a great strategy. I'm like, cheating <laughs> yeah, is a very good strategy. But... <laughs> I, I, I tell people this all the time is that I'll get interviewed and people will ask me, well, what's the solution? And I, I say, you're asking the wrong question. The proper question is, what are the solutions? Because mm -hmm. it gets back to different strokes for different folks. Mm -hmm. You know, some kids work better on a one-to-one -one basis. Some kids like yeah. working in small groups. Some kids like working in large groups. Some kids process better with their ears. Some kids, mm -hmm, they have to right. move and feel everything. Oh, some yeah. kids, they do it mm -hmm. with their eyes. You know, uh, uh, everybody's a little bit different. And that's what the struggle is for most teachers is I say, well, if you have 33 kids, you basically have 33 different learning styles in that room. Yeah. And you yeah. have to take the time to figure out well, here's the gas that fuels Claudia, which is a different mm -hmm. type of gasoline yeah. that fuels Danny. So motivation, there's yeah. not an answer. There's lots of answers. Yeah. And uh -huh. that's where the that's where the art is, is trying to figure yeah, out yeah. what is it that fuels every single uh, individual. Mm -hmm. That and My next question uh, was uh, the numbers. What do the numbers look like? How many students are in class? Is it uh, 33? Is that a, a norm? Well, I taught in the inner city, so we always had, mm -hmm. I mean, mine was ridiculous because I always had at least 33 students. And mm. since I was a dude, everybody just assumed I was the disciplinarian. So they'd give me like 10 oh. discipline problems, which oh. is a huge mistake because I'm like Mr. Play. And oh. I, I did that, you know, uh, my own children in their schools, I think it's almost, it's like 18 to one is the ratio. Ah, okay. You know, okay. you were saying, you were saying uh, you went to Catholic school. I mean, I still have the welts on the back of my hands. Oh, from all the I nuns smacking me. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when my, my friend again, Jim uh, Trelease, when he was in first grade, he said that there was 93 kids in his Catholic oh my first God. grade classroom. <laughs> And it's one of my favorite lines of any speaker. Uh, somebody asked, uh, oh, did the nun have an aide? And he's like, yeah, he was hanging on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great yeah. one. <laughs> oh, God. Sister Mary at lunchtime in my family, we oh. ate Italian food, you know. So when we went to, and we had lunch there and they had these cheeses that were orange slices of cheese that were orange I just couldn't do it I just couldn't do it and that's she forced us to eat it it was terrible
Well, you would have liked that when I was. I got all. I, I could do a whole presentation just on going to Catholic school. In fourth, grade, in fourth grade, we were at the cafeteria, and there was this bowl of apples, and uh, uh, Sister Teresa had written a note that said, uh, uh, "Please only take one apple. God is watching." And at oh. the end of the at, at the end of the line, there were cookies. And my friend Casey wrote a note that said, "Take all you want. God's God's watching the apples." <laughs> right. Which is great. And, and to me, when a ten-year-old can think of something like that, as a teacher, I love that. I'm like, that's a creative kid. I love that. I I would praise something like that. And we got in trouble, yeah. but I, I would have actually encouraged that kind of behavior. So uh, before we started um, the episode, you mentioned that you were in uh, Los Angeles, inner city, but then you moved to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, did that change the nature of your work? Or are you still working with those age groups? Well, I don't really actually even work with that age group, Claudia. I, oh. I go around the world. I pretty much train parents, teachers, executives I see. Uh, I see. how to make mm-hmm. reading fun. And all I need is a, an airport uh, nearby. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter where I am at. When we moved here, I told you my wife was much smarter than me. She, But uh, <laughs> my criteria was that we had to be near a major airport and we needed to have the kids in the best schools yeah. in the state. And so we were yeah. actually... I'm not as I'm not as satisfied with the schools here as I would like, but uh, um, you know, what can you do? It, it, it doesn't matter. Do. I mean, it, again, I always tell parents when I have parents come and they're all concerned, what can I do for my kid? The first thing I say is the fact that you're here right now tells me eighty percent of yeah. what I need to know. Yeah. We can work on the other twenty percent, but if you're that concerned about your kid, your kid's going to do fine. Yeah. It's the mm. it's the kids that don't have that advocate for them at home that yeah. I worry about. Do you have anything to do with um, families who homeschool? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually homeschooled my youngest daughter last year. It was amazing. I, I actually what, thought they, was there a reason for that specifically, or the pandemic? The pandemic really oh. uh, it kind of screwed up. The school my youngest was at uh, had a really bad system. I, I didn't think she was learning anything, and I. I I really believe that uh, I was actually very impressed with the homeschool program we put her through. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason, the only reason she's not in that this year was I was a little bit concerned about socialization. I wanted her to have uh, those social right. uh, opportunities with with other kids. But I mean, I, I again, people always will say, "Well, what's the solution?" I'm like, public school for some kids, private school for others, right. homeschool for some, vocational school for some, magnet school. I mean, there's all kinds of different different strokes mm-hmm. for different folks. And I, I look at all these people that fall through the cracks and that's a total failure. I'm, I'm appalled by that. I'm like, wait a sec, we mm-hmm. should be able to find something that fits the needs of that kid. Your second son is a perfect example. Whereas if I put him in a school where instead of having assignments, he designs his own curricula where instead of yeah. doing a science yeah, yeah. project I assign, right. he creates his own science project. I guarantee you, not only is his science project going to be better, he's going to spend 10 times as much time on yeah. that than the thing, the stupid thing that I assigned him because he's interested in it. Yeah, but I mean, this kid went on to be, uh, to, to, to being a musician, part of a band, you know, small right. town, uh, you know, they just, you have to find what what yeah. moves them, that's, you know? That's right. Really that's interesting. Right. Um, I'm thinking of um, years ago, I, I could safely say maybe five or six years ago when it started, I might be wrong. Um, in Europe, there was a portfolio system where mm-hmm. that favored uh, 
roaming, Rome, I guess they're called roaming or Roma uh, populations that, that wandered, okay, that mm-hmm. were, you know, went across borders. And mm-hmm. they had sort of a portfolio. They would be working from their uh, mobile homes or from wherever they did it with their computers. And whatever they did, whatever exams they took, they would put this in the profile and uh, in their portfolio and then would go on to the next school in another place. And it was interesting to me. It was an interesting thought, but it's a form of homeschooling, Mm -hmm. but has a lot of, you know, loopholes if you want because it would be missing a lot of things that a, a public or a private school would have but i found it to be so interesting this uh, concept of a portfolio you know with things that you just add as you crossed borders i thought that was uh, really really interesting so now we're to the books now um i'd like to close with the, the notion of the books when was the when did you write your first uh, good question. It's around 2004, I think, is when mm-hmm. my first book came out. I co-wrote mm-hmm. it with a uh, gentleman who was famous in his field, and his contribution was he put his name on the book and wrote a biography that was twice as long as mine for his little excerpt, and I'm the one that actually wrote the entire book. And it, <laughs> it, To me, that was a big mistake on his part, because whenever I see his name on anything, I question if he wrote it. I know that I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Is is what was the title of that first book? Oh, I'm not going to say because then then the, I'm oh. throwing the other author under the bus. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. So when you started writing, and this is just to get an, a little bit of information of your style, when you started writing that very first book, did you already have an idea for the upcoming series or partner well, books? The book or- I- So the first books I was writing were very academic in nature and basically, Uh um, you know, they were books that addressed issues that were that teachers were asking about. Well, how can we do that? Um, Now I like to write books that are inspirational, that get people Mm -hmm. pumped up. uh, That's a whole different genre, a whole different register, a whole different language. Yeah, total different genre. How did you do that? I mean, was it easy to do... I don't want to mean I don't want to say dumb down but get the proper lingo or register to do that was it easy for you to do that it's every book's a different experience and so probably mm-hmm. the easiest book I ever wrote was uh, I have I have lots of different keynote addresses that I do mm-hmm. and uh, one of my keynote addresses I had delivered probably 200 times and somebody asked ah, for I a see. book version of it I wrote that book in three days because the whole of course. the whole speech was in my head and it, I, right. I love the book it's it's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, the leadership. But will you tell me book. that name? Will you give me that title? Yeah, that one's called A Baker's <laughs> Dozen of Lessons Learned from the Teaching Trenches. I, I'm not throwing okay. anybody under the bus on that one. <laughs> okay. know, and it's interesting because I've worked with I have I've had five different publishing companies and I've also self published mm-hmm. and so I, I'll, uh, I'll actually do five write. different sell uh, five different publishing companies. They're not your own. They're not, not my own, you, yeah. that you own. Ah, that you've worked with. That, that I've worked with, yeah. Ah, okay, yeah, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, that was kind of selfish because when I go to conferences and these publishing companies have parties, I want to be invited to all the different parties, and so I made sure to <laughs> to find different publishers so I could go to the different cocktail receptions. So, were, but every, were these every the book's first... a different experience? I know, I know, and and I love 
that writing experience. I just mm -hmm. love it. Um, well, it's like, look, I, I'm a little bit different, Claudia. I don't like writing. I like having written. <laughs> oh. Writing is hard. <laughs> oh, it is. It's very hard. But I love that the experience, yeah. the process. Yeah. I love it. I just yeah. absolutely love it. It's very hard. But I think it's that difficulty that is a challenge for me. And when I get over those those little challenges, you know, I love it. It just makes yeah. me feel so. And, and it just never ends, you know, unless you say, okay, that's the end. Boom. Mm -hmm. In Italian, we say, mettere la parola fine, the end. You have to write there that, the end, and get on with it. Um, <laughs> when <laughs> the, the, the process of... of publishing with publishing houses was that early on and then you went into indian into individual publishing and in, independent yeah or, correct or uh, yeah i started oh. with traditional publishers and now mm -hmm. i self-publish because uh my turnaround time is a lot quicker if i self-publish uh i run one of the largest book clubs on the planet and i i used to be able to uh, people what, always can are you tell me us i mean can you tell me that name <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, and this is all your listeners. It's a free subscription. And they can go to lazyreaders.com, lazyreaders.com. If you subscribe, it's a free subscription once a month for the rest of your life. I update it with 10 new book recommendations, three or four right. adult level, three or four young adult level, and three or four <laughs> children's level books, all under 250 pages. So you have something you can read when you're stuck, when you're in a boring right. meeting or something. Right. Um, and it, uh, so people are always sending me, I probably get about 5,000 books submitted to me every year for review. And it used to well, be. How do you do that? How can you handle well, that? Yeah. So uh, Paul Tagliabu, the former National Football League commissioner, when he retired, somebody asked him, what are you going to do in retirement? And he said, well, I'm going to read a lot more than the first and the last chapter in books. And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of truth <laughs> to that. I, yeah. I have to read books pretty quickly. Uh, there's very few mm. books where I can just sit there and go word for of word. Of course. You were kind of talking mm -hmm. about that the with the diagonal reading. Like, yeah, I need to go for the gist. I can't go for yeah. every single uh, uh, asterisk. It's and a comma. skill. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and so, what I started seeing is that a lot of the self-published books started looking like regular books. I'm like, oh, wait yeah, a second. Yeah. It could be. There's no purpose for Not... a publisher if I can yeah. like so. Uh, I'll give an example. Like if you go on mm -hmm. Create Space, which is on Create Space on Amazon will allow you to self-publish right. a book. Well, mm -hmm. any major publisher I've ever worked with, the most royalty they'll give you is anywhere from 6% to 15%. Right. Well, Amazon's commission is 70%. Of course, of course, so yes. So why am but... I gonna, why am I gonna waste my time with a publisher Wait. who's not gonna Wait. do anything Wait. to sell my book? Yes, I'm gonna, let's, I'm gonna let's be fair, book. let's be yeah. fair. Uh -huh. If we're fair, we have to say, that your initial five books, let's say five, whatever, were uh, published with publishing houses. And you were generating, you know, you're talking here, there, people know your mm -hmm. name, it's being tossed around, your books are being sold, and you're in a process, you're a tourbillon, I mean, you're moving, right? Mm -hmm. If from that experience you start independent publishing, it's a different ballgame because people know who you are. People, you know, it's the process of selling and marketing your book is a little easier then, don't you think? I, I, I don't. I don't know if I agree with that, Claudia. I mm. think that no publisher is actually going to go on your behalf to sell you. I mean, they might put mm. a, a blurb in their catalog. True, that's Here's true. Here's the titles that's that true. we have. 
But of course. every author is going to tell you yes, that it's up to I them know. to market their book. Yes. And so you go on podcasts, you go do your interviews, you yes. speak at conferences and say, mm -hmm. hey, my books are in the back of the room. Right, right. Publishing mm -hmm. companies don't really do a, a whole, I don't know, I, I, again, I don't want to overgeneralize. I mean, sure, uh, sure. If, I, if I was J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, I would definitely be mm -hmm. working with a traditional publisher because mm -hmm. the publishing company would treat me like a rock star and they would book me yeah, at all right. these things. Mm -hmm. But even a person like... Uh, Wayne Dyer was in the he's passed away but when he was in the personal development world I mean he personally got in his car and went to every major public broadcasting station in America and sold his book that way it wasn't through his publisher it was through mm -hmm. him uh, that's the way you build an audience I mean if you look at yeah. one of the best-selling books of the last I mean, I used to do a presentation just on self-published authors. I mean, Mark Twain mm -hmm. started off as a self-published author. John Grisham uh -huh. started off. Edgar Allan Poe. The, one of the best-selling books of the last 30 years is The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. He self-published that book. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Canfield's, uh, they self-published Chicken Soup for the Soul. I mean, there's, I mean, we're, you're talking some of the most glorious titles. You have uh, not mentioned one woman. <laughs> Shame on well, you. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because no, no, you said Rawlings. So, yeah, come on. <laughs> Initially, you mentioned Rawlings. But, she didn't. No, J.K. Rawlings. She didn't self-publish though. I'm trying to think of a woman that self-published. I mean, that's um, a big name. Mm -mm. You know, for me, I, I used to do a presentation like "Thank Goodness for Wives" because uh, <laughs> so many wives, I, 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 like there was. No, this I wouldn't guy, go down that road. <laughs> Well, there was there was a guy, and he he kept on sending his books to a an agent in New York City, and the uh -huh. agent kept on the agent kept on rejecting him. And finally, yeah. he wrote this book, and he looked at his wife, and he said, "What's the point?" And so he threw it in the trash can. Well, his wife she took the manuscript out of the trash can, she sent it to the agent. He loved it. He gave the author $450,000 for the rights to the book. The book was called Carrie, and the author was Stephen King. And it, the only reason he got published was because of his wife having that belief in him. There's another story I talk about where uh, it was a successful screenwriter, and he had two daughters. And every night he used to tell bedtime stories to his little girls. And his wife overheard him, and she's like, "You should turn that into a book." And he said, "I'm not a I'm not a writer. I'm a I'm a screenwriter." And she's like, "Well, why don't you write the book and then make it into a movie?" And so right. he took the stories, he put them into a book. He called the book "The Princess Bride." His name was William Goldman. It became one of my favorite uh, yeah. uh, movies of all time. And I'm trying, you know, you stump me, Claudia, because I'm actually the life of me. Yeah, no. I'm trying. I'm to sure you'll come up with one. Self-published. Yeah. yeah, I got a female. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I always told people that when I'm talking to writers, I'm like, you know, uh, there's. Uh, I'm a big fan of poetry. It's the best ways to mm -hmm. learn how to read and write. I say. Mm -hmm. And there's a uh, uh, Emily Dickinson has a poem. Uh, uh, XXVII because I never learned Roman numerals uh, and it goes uh, I'm nobody who are you are you nobody too then there's a pair of us don't tell they banish us you know how dreary to be somebody <laughs> how public like a frog to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog and when I tell that to story to students I'm like if you listen to this poem this this woman had some serious self-esteem issues sure. and I'm like a lot of people don't know this Emily Dickinson didn't share her books when she was alive she died. Uh -huh. They found her poems in the attic. Yeah. I mean, she had no idea 
the poetry she had and how it was going to affect millions of people. And I, yeah. I say this to people all the time, all of you, whether you're a poet or a business person or a good parent, mm -hmm. you have poetry, you have something to offer to the world. Don't let, don't leave yeah. this planet until you've given it to the, to the planet. Um, I'm going to share this last um, little tiny story. I'm an avid reader, uh, but mm -hmm. I'm an audiobook reader mostly mm -hmm. because I like moving. And when I move, I can listen and I can read, you know. Um, the last book I just picked up, it was out of the corner of my eye and I came across it by, by chance. Uh, Love, Lucy, oh. read and by, by Lucille Ball mm -hmm. and read by Lucy Arnaz, her oh, daughter. Cool. And nice. the book was written by Lucille Ball in at the end of the 50s, it was 1959, and it was hidden. And when both of her parents passed, uh, their parents passed, they found the manuscript. Someone sent her the manuscript because it was recorded and transcribed and now in the in a book. It was absolutely, I've, in one day, not even a day and a half maybe, tops, I went right through its history, yeah. uh, details, show business, it was fabulous, fabulous. And um, you know, what category does that go in down memory lane? Or what was it like in the McCarthy era, you know, when yeah. she was, you know, it was, it was just fabulous. And there's just, there's not enough time in the day to, to do all that reading, really, you know, it's yeah. just not enough time. And what's uh, your favorite genre, genre, Claudia? Well, I'm getting into well, for many, many years, of course, the thrillers, political thrillers. I love it because I was a conference interpreter and I was I worked <laughs> for politics. I do work for politics all the time. But mm -hmm. now I'm getting out of that and I'm getting into the paranormal romance. Oh, wow. a paranormal romance and because I'm going I'm leaning my writing towards that and I'm going to put a, a psychic spin on it <laughs> but it's well you see though you just gave your audience a really good tip though if you're going to write that kind of book you need to read other books in that genre which I oh, you're course. absolutely right That's yeah the yeah way and you have it. well you have to know your competition when mm -hmm. <laughs> when any absolutely. kind of business right well I've always told people there's no I have no such thing as competition I only have potential <laughs> collaborators <laughs> I get that, sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Danny Brussel, for I've you know taken advantage of your time. <laughs> so well, we've been on for so long. <laughs> well, Claudia, uh, before I leave, I just wanted to make sure to serve your audience one more way. If they go to freegiftfromdanny.com, again, hmm. freegiftfromdanny.com, I'm going to give away everybody a complimentary e-copy of my book, Read, Lead, and Succeed. It's a book I wrote for a school principal who was trying to keep his faculty positively engaged. So I said, okay, I'll write you a book. So every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book recommendation <laughs> that demonstrates the same concept. Plus I'll give you access to uh, a, a, a five day reading challenge I recently did with about 700 parents around the world where for a week, for an hour a day, you'll get all kinds of tips from me on how to get your kid to read more, read better, and most importantly, love reading. So that's uh, for Tell all of your again. audience. Tell us again the where we can find that. Freegiftfromdanny.com. Freegiftfromdanny.com. Thank you so, so much. I'll be looking for that. <laughs> Thanks, Claudia. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for all you do. <laughs> 
I hope our paths cross again, Absolutely. especially when the new book comes out. Hmm, maybe yeah. that will be the time. <laughs> bye I'm going to try and finish it over the holidays. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he says, did you hear that, ladies yeah. and gentlemen? Yeah. <laughs> bye bye, Danny. Bye bye. <laughs>